That's why Frank Sinatra couldn't play New York. Many, many people couldn't play in New York. What kind of criminal record? Anything. Okay. You know, they, okay. you, you couldn't work New York City. Oh it, was, it, was a, it was a really bizarre thing. It's you kind know? of hostile to artists. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Welcome to Stuff You Can't Say with Jazz Piano, one Aussie musician's leash-free zone for unruly opinions. This is Emma Stevenson. Mike Knox's career as a pianist and composer has spanned a broad range of contemporary music styles and he is widely recognised as an important voice in Australian modern music. Based in Sydney since 1986, he previously spent 25 years in the USA, working with many of the world's top jazz artists including Yusuf Latif and Dave Liebman. As music director of Naxos Jazz from 1996 to 2002, he oversaw the production of more than 60 internationally released CDs. His compositions include orchestral music, woodwind and percussion ensembles, electronic and choral works, and have been recorded and performed by a range of jazz and non-jazz performers. Attracting many awards and honours over his lengthy career, in 2003 he was presented with the New Zealand Order of Merit. In 2009, he was inducted into the Bell Awards Australian Jazz Hall of Fame, and in 2014, he was awarded the Don Banks Music Award, the most valuable individual music award in Australia. In 2010, a biography of Mike's life and career was published, Serious Fun, The Life and Music of Mike Nock. You are listening to an excerpt from Slow News Day, a track on Mike's 2012 album, Hear and Know, featuring James Waples on drums, Ben Waples on double bass, Carl Laskowski on tenor sax, and Ken Allars on trumpet. Mike Nock, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Mike. My pleasure, Emma. So, you worked with some of the biggest names in jazz history, uh, people like Dave Liebman, Yusuf Latif, Michael Brecker. I'm wondering how these experiences affected you professionally and musically. Well, that was uh, that's a good question because, I mean, that was why I went to the States was to get experience, but my experience started pretty much as soon as I got to the States by going to uh, Berkeley. I had a scholarship to Berkeley and uh, this guy there called Herb Pomeroy, who was actually a legendary teacher. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him. Mm-mm. Oh, you haven't? No, terrible. <laughs> no, but no, he was a legendary teacher. He was mm. a trumpet player and he used to run this band uh, where I used to, a place called The Stables. He had this, the Herb Pomeroy big band mm-hmm. and they were like really really something you know mm. and people like Sam Rivers would play in the band this was like where I really got my cool. my concepts about what it's really all about yeah you know to have Sam Rivers in the band to have people like uh, well you wouldn't know all these names but it was it was a band in which the, the focus was on was jazz it was a big band that played jazz which means that it opened up 
Hmm. You know, at any time the solace would would go, and you know, and hmm. it had great writers, Arif Mardin. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was writing for the band. All these kind of all these people that all that had been students of of, of Herbs. Ah, okay. You know, from That's Boston. That's a common thread. Yeah, yeah. So Boston was like really. There was this whole artistic side to Boston at that period, mm-hmm. and it was fantastic. It was like it was just it was, <laughs> it was unbelievable, you know. And uh, so I I'd had all this kind of experience, and like from that, I'd uh, I'd worked with some other people, and then then I got this gig playing at a club called Lenny's on the Turnpike. Mm-hmm. Ever hear of this? No. <laughs> uh, well, well, Lenny's on the Turnpike is probably uh, no, it's not going, still going because the guy died a little while ago. But it was like, it was a club just outside of Boston. And I was there with a rhythm section with Alan Dawson. Mm-hmm. He was playing drums. Cool. And, we, and a bass player called John Nebs or Kent Carter, who went, went to France and played kind of new music. But we had a trio there for a long, long time. And what we did, we, we were like the rhythm section for like all these different people. Mm-hmm. And they, Coleman Hawkins, <laughs> Sonny Stitt, I mean, you know, Benny Golson, mm. Phil Woods. I mean, you know, it was like the history of jazz. Wow. And I was there for at least two years. That's amazing. You know, <laughs> so that's, that's where I really kind of... Uh-huh. And plus, I was hanging with Sam Rivers uh-huh. and playing with Sam, not in the club, but at, at privately, and with Tony Williams, because we, we were like all buddies. Mm-hmm. So this is where I really kind of... Mm-hmm. So by the time I came to play with Yusef and Dave Lieberman and those cats, I mean, I'm already pretty... Hey, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I'm not overawed by that. I mean, you know, matter of fact, I was, I was telling Mike how to play. Don't play all that shit on my records. <laughs> I see. So it was actually your time at Berkeley that you feel was the most... Well, that's what really did it for me. Right. You know, because I felt that was the real thing, you know. And also there was a club there called Connolly's, you know, Connolly's Stardust Room, it was called. It was one of those little funky clubs. Mm. Like Herbie Hancock used to play there sometimes. And, and mm. um, what's his name? Uh, uh, God damn. Well, so many great players. Mm. Uh, Oh, I can see his name with the. Uh, It'll come back to you later. Yeah, yeah. But it was, there was always guys there, and, and it was a little tiny spinet piano. Uh-huh. Herbie Hancock playing on a spinet piano. What was yeah. that like? Well, it was amazing because Herbie just played the same way as if he, he didn't try to. That kind of blew my mind. Yeah. To see these cats, he wasn't doing anything. Matter of fact, that's how I got the gig with the Yusuf Latif, I think, because uh. because Hal Galper his, had been going to see a psychiatrist, and a psychiatrist, you know. I don't know how this came about, but Hal had this thing about spinet pianos mm. and it was going to mess up his technique or something. Mm. So he gave me the gig. I oh, wow. Like, <laughs> and you weren't so precious. Are you kidding? It, it opened all kinds of doors uh-huh. to everything for me. Right. So yeah. are you like that with pianos? Are you not, not picky about your pianos? Oh, I'm very picky about pianos, but hey, yeah. you know, like, I mean, I never thought of myself as a piano player in the first place. Right. Okay. You know, I mean, to, to the piano is a... What did I mean, you think of yourself as? A, a musician. Right, okay. You know, I mean, you, yeah. know, you did the best you can, you know, like yeah. with what you had. And sometimes oh. I played some really dogs, I've got to admit. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean one, one, of the, one of the most disappointing gigs I did was with uh, the saxophone player with Duke Ellington. Uh, oh, God, i I, I got to think of his name. He, he did that diminuendo and, and the thing in blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I know who you're talking about, but I'm in the same. It was one of those gigs, <laughs> yeah. you know, and um, he was going to do the gig, and I was, I was so excited because uh, that was one of the records that I'd heard as a kid, and mm. I was like, oh, this is going to be fantastic, Paul Gonzalez, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know. And we get to the gig, and the piano is like, 
it's the worst piano yeah. I've ever played on in terms of it was in the cracks. Oh. They couldn't even get us like, I, I actually drank a bottle of whiskey and got totally out of it as fast as I could. I was so... Just to numb the experience. Yeah, I was just so, I was just distraught. Mm. <laughs> you know? It's so devastating for pianists. It is. I think that it's a unique experience for piano players. I mean, I guess some other instrumentalists have to go through it, but... Not like the that. The piano, yeah, it's a traumatic experience sometimes. Everything yeah. you... Pl- Look, that was yeah. one of the things that happened a lot. People would, you know, they'd hear me on a decent piano and they'd realise I could play okay. Yeah. And I'd be really pissed off because, yeah, I was playing the same stuff. Yeah, you know? they just heard you on some other piano. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, okay. So how long did you spend in the US when you were finished studying in Berkeley? How much longer did you stay in the States? Well, I, I wasn't actually... I, I left Berkeley pretty quickly. Mm. I was only there for about a year mm-hmm. because it wasn't... I got up at this gig with Yusuf, or maybe two years. Uh-huh. No, I must have, no, it must have been... Uh, uh, it was about two years, I think. So I must have been at Berkeley, and I, but then I was in the local scene, and I was... Actually, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I went to see Ray Santisi, the piano teacher. He was my, my teacher. And uh, I'd been washing dishes and all that shit, you know, like... Because I had no money. I'd gotten a scholarship, but the scholarship was on the, the amount of, I think it was $3,000. $3,000! I mean, I, I thought it was a fortune coming from here. I thought, oh, yeah. And then I realized, man, yeah. you, you better go back home right away. Right away. So anyway, I, I had this gig washing dishes, and I became really aware that, hey, it's, it's, it's not this level society at all yeah it's really not a classless society of course. and as a dishwasher you're the lowest of the low you know, <laughs> you know? and so yeah. you know so th- and I, I was really depressed about all this and i was going to race antizi to say well i'm, I'm going to go to canada forget this shit I, oh really canada know. yeah yeah that was why my, canada well because it was close and i was I, you know it's, yeah. it's i'm part of the commonwealth and all that kind of stuff you know yeah and before i could tell him this he said, would you be interested in playing like jazz five nights a week or four nights a week or something? Ah, and, and he had it with a trio uh-huh. with a couple of guys that were like an old school guitar player that was really, really good mm-hmm. and, a, and a really good bass player, you know. And it was like, and the, and the club owner was in a, was in a bar in, outside of Boston, had, had bought a grand piano because he was a jazz fan That's and he good. wanted us to go and just play jazz. And you had a good piano, that was such good luck. Oh, I'm telling <laughs> you. And so that's when, the, that's when it started for me. Uh-huh. And, and then, I, then I got the gig with Lenny's and by that time I, I probably wasn't at Berkeley any longer. Uh-huh. But I wasn't playing so much with, with Sam Rivers and Tony Williams and all those kind of people, mm. you know, and it was, we had this great band in Boston, Quintet, mm-hmm. you know, it was just fantastic. So were you in Boston for the majority of the time? No, 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 no. I was no because what happened? Then I I did a gig with uh, Yusuf on one of those the gig that Hal couldn't do. This is what <laughs> this is how come the gig it happened because Yusuf Latif was doing this gig at Connolly's, mm-hmm. and Hal didn't want to play because the psychiatrist had told him he shouldn't play this piano. I think it was going to mess his head up or something. Oh I said, God. Oh great, I'll do it. You know, and me and Yusuf just hit it off. Great. It was just like one of those things. It was like wow, uh-huh. you know. And so then what happened is like. Uh, I've been playing with. Uh, am I t- telling you too much? No, it's great. Okay, good. Because yeah. well, I've been playing. Uh, uh, I've been playing with Sam and, and Tony. Not Tony, with a guy called Sam uh, Allington. Steve Allington was a drummer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of him. He, he's, he's kind of. He's probably dropped off the scene a bit now. And we had this band, and we were working at a place called Provincetown, and you know we had this gig for the summer. 
And so they marched us, the, it was one of those places that you had to have a police card. Did, did, did you remember the New York police cards? Uh, no. You ever hear, did you ever hear of the police cards? I don't, I don't know what that is. Oh, well, see, in those days, if you had any kind of thing, if you were like any kind of criminal record uh, in New York, that's why Frank Sinatra couldn't play New York. Many, many people couldn't play in New York. What kind of criminal record? Anything. Okay. You know, they, okay. You, you couldn't work New York City. Oh it, was, it, was a, it was a really bizarre thing. It's you kind know? of hostile to artists. Well, yeah, exactly. But junkies, well, anyone that had any kind of junkie connection couldn't work New York. I had no idea. It was, it was incredible. Wow. It, was, it was a period. You know. Anyway, so, but they used to do this in Provincetown. Mm-hmm. And, and the guys are showing us around the jails, right? You know, because we, we, we had to go and get a police card and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Well, in the first place, I was there illegally because I was at my, oh. overstayed my, my, my visa. <laughs> and so I said, oh, fuck, they're going to catch me. And, and the guys were saying, you know, one of the things we do, we get all these... Uh, you know, people have overstayed there. Oh my God. And I'm looking at the He says, Yeah, and these are the jails. And I was like, oh, Christ. So oh I got back to Boston as soon as I could and got on the phone uh-huh. and called up my girlfriend who was living, she'd gone back to Florida. I says, Hey, you know, you said you would marry me if this happened. <laughs> so. One of the many good reasons to get married. Well, it was, it, it, it was you know, well, it wasn't, it was a marriage of inconvenience, you know, <laughs> well, not a marriage of convenience, there is no such thing, you know, uh-huh. but mm-hmm. what, what I was leading to was about this, so uh, we come up and get married, and yeah. on our wedding night, the actual night, we're actually, you know, we had our wedding night, the phone rings, and there's Yusuf asking me to come to, to join his band, and the first gig was in Philadelphia the, the next night. Uh-huh. At Peps. You skipped the honeymoon then? We well, you know we had no honeymoon. No, okay. you know, well, it was like, you know, so I went to Peps and, and then I was on the road for the next 18 months. Amazing. Touring with a black man in the States. Cool. You know, and, and, and we made three records that first night. Mm-hmm. I just joined the band. <laughs> I, yeah, before we started um, recording today, you were saying how you felt like throughout your career, things just came to you. Yeah, they did. And, yeah. You know, so that, 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 that's how it all kind of, that's how it started. Kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was all happening. That's amazing. So after such an incredible time in the US, and I'm sure there are lots of details we haven't covered, yeah, yeah, feel yeah. free to go backtrack and cover them. But um, I'm wondering like, what eventually brought you back to Australia? Well, I didn't like living in the US. How come? Politically. It, it, uh, really, it really didn't feel good to me. Uh-huh. So you know? what, what was going on politically? Then? Well, I mean, I was there through the Reagan years, which started the whole thing, actually. Yeah. Up to that point, it had been okay. Mm-hmm. You know, but then Reagan got in and it just, things started changing. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. I was a white boy, you know, playing in these black clubs in, in the black mm. areas. And there was one time, I remember, like, there was a whole bunch of vigilantes on the street. It was, they had to hide me. Oh, my gosh. You know, all this kind of shit was happening, you know. That's it was crazy. It was pretty weird. And I... You know, we used to play the Chitlin Circuit. You ever heard of the Chitlin Circuit? Mm-hmm. Well, that's another thing. The Chitlin Circuit was all the black clubs in the States. Mm-hmm. You know? So you never saw another white person. Oh, wow. You know? But it was so out. You, you felt like the minority then? Well, definitely it was the minority. <laughs> yeah. But it was. But at the same time, Yusuf, it was a very strange-looking band because we had a guy called Johnny Coles on trumpet, beautiful player. Uh-huh. And Johnny Coles had one of those pigmentation diseases. You know that? Ever seen that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Johnny was a trumpet player, and we had uh, James Black on, on, on drums, who was really a very fierce-looking, odd-looking cat. You know? <laughs> and we, we used to 
well, we used to get it on with each other, like physically, you know, like we'd okay. fist wise. It was, it was a really, it was uh -huh. a, all kinds of shit happening in the band, but we really ended up really loving each other. But, you know, it was kind of, yeah, was intense a, lo a lot of, a lot of intensity, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but the thing was, Yusuf was kind of a weird looking cat too. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, he was like, even just pulling up into a white service station to mm. get gasoline or to go to a Howard Johnson's to get some food would be fraught. Mm. Because the shit was, he was uncomfortable around the white scene. Mm. It was a really, it was much more divisive in those days, I think, than it is now. Mm. You know, mm. and it was, it was so he was uncomfortable. It was, it was like, and I, I was there, and it was, it was kind of weird. But I was, they accepted me totally. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So what happened politically during the Reagan administration? That like, did it affect the music scene, or was it more just the well, general? Well, all we did is play black clubs. And they oh. weren't jazz clubs, they were black clubs. Oh, okay. You know, which and that was different to the previous decade? Or... Well, it might have been because, I mean, you would never go to a black club to hear jazz. Well, actually, when I, when, I was, when I was actually in the States, that was what was happening a lot of the time. I used to go to clubs to hear music, you know, mm. in, in the black district. They weren't jazz clubs. They played jazz. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that dispense was, with the labels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just music. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a whole different vibe. Uh -huh. And I heard some great, you know, it was just, it was just what it was. Mm. You know, it was a whole different thing. I was working with the Stanley Tarantine for a while at uh, Minton's Playhouse. Mm -hmm. You know, when, I was there like four weeks ago. Really? At Minton's? It was empty. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a weeknight. Don't, don't be too concerned. <laughs> but yeah, different, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, it would be really different. Mm. So is this the same place on the 127th or 121st Street or something mm, like that? Sounds right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Can't quite keep track of it. So what were you doing there? I can't remember. I was seeing somebody. I just remember being really... I mean, it was... It's all kind of blurred into one, but I remember distinctly being surprised by the lack of people there because I was expecting it to be full. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was. And I wouldn't say anyway because it was empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I did remember, yeah. But I wonder, but, like, whether it's actually changed that much because yeah. it, that was very much at the heart of the black community. Right. Is it still like that or not? I don't know. Hard to say. Really? Yeah, I'm sure it's changed a lot since yeah. those days, though. But, I mean, I used yeah. to, I used to be scared going to work. Really? I mean, literally, oh hell yeah! Wow. Because people, you know, like you'd have to run the gamut, you know, <laughs> from the subway to the club. Yeah, it's not like that now. I feel pretty safe in that area. Oh yeah, yeah. And there'd be guys there like with their dogs. They'd see me and the dogs. They'd be snarling and you know, oh grinning at me. These guys are holding the dogs, obviously oh. seeing a white, you know, all that shit. By the time you got to the club, you'd be shaking up. You know, <laughs> you'd have some stuff to express in your music. Well, there you go. You know. Yeah, I mean, New York is not. I mean, I'm very grateful to be living in a safer New York, but there's definitely. I think it, it's missing some of that character that it used to be. <laughs> yeah, character Maybe. is one way of putting it. Like, <laughs> I was w working a gig, after the gig at Minton's one night, uh, me and the bass player were trying to get home. Mm. Uh, I can't think of his name offhand. And, and, the, and what had happened, we, we got in a cab, you know, and we, he, I, I'm not sure whether he had his bass or not, probably not, you know. But anyway, we get in this cab and we hear some shooting. Now we're up in Harlem. And we hear some, sh there's, there's a gunfight mm. going on. Mm. And, and uh, we say, hey, get out of this, get out of here to the cab driver. The, the guy says, keep your hands above your head. He says, I'm an off-duty policeman. And he starts driving towards where the shooting is. Oh and and we, he pulls up and there's a whole bunch of people on the street. And we had to, we were on the floor because we had the, you know, the shooting's here on the street 
there's some people up here and he's driving towards these people mm-hmm. and this bullet's flying around and we're kind of scared shitless uh-huh. and, he, and he gets to these people and there's a bunch of cops and he says, I got him, I got him. What? And uh, all of a sudden we are the ones, we're the ones that, you know, but luckily, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the guy that had dropped this off, you know, uh, it was a guy called Grisella Oliphant, a drummer uh-huh. who had his own band. And he must have been working the gig with us. Or so I can't remember, you know. And he says, oh, and he had a big Cadillac and shit. And he was one of those cats. He says, oh, officer, I know these gentlemen. You know, they're okay. And they, you know, they, they finally straightened us out. But that shook the hell out of me. I was shook up. If you can believe that, you know. Oh, my God. You know, I, mean, I can't it was imagine like, that. You know. Nothing like that would ever happen here in Australia. <laughs> well, not so not like that. So is that part of, so you came back to Australia because of the political Well, all those decisions. things started affecting me for sure. I mean, yeah. I had a lot of a lot of things happening like that. Um, I've got a story about a singer, it's, uh, 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 Chris Connor. You know, and that's an, I won't go into length about this story, mm-hmm. but, the, but the point is it was her debut. Anyway, what had happened, her, her, she'd been out, she, she's a bit of an alcoholic, mm-hmm. to put it mildly, and, and uh, she was making a comeback. And, and the audience was like the, the dregs of society. Right. And she was smashed. She was, and she had the big bouffant hairdo like Maggie. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and, uh, and she starts saying things to me like, you know. The first set was cool because the bass player, who was my friend, had been playing with her for years. And he said, I'll count the tempos off. Because I, I was a bit nervous, you know. And I said, great, you do that. Anyway, she didn't, Chrissy didn't like that. I get the call. Chrissy wants to see you in the dressing room. Ooh. So I go to the dressing and she says, you're the piano player, right? <laughs> then I realized, whoops, she's out of her brain. You should have just said no. no. <laughs> she said, well, you count the tempos. Uh. What? Well, I mean, I didn't even know uh. this shit. It was my first night in the gig, uh. you know. And uh, anyway, so uh, we get out there and so she starts turning on me. You know, and oh, she's, she's saying things like, uh, you're trying to fuck me up. Uh, on stage, this is you know, the little asides, you know. And oh, my God. It, it's, it's getting out. So what happened, she started raving to the people. She was so drunk, she didn't realize what was happening, you know. And I had, I thought something like this was going to happen, so I'd stashed my coat close to the, it was wintertime, you know, in New York, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get off the stage, and she's going, and, and they're all saying, yeah, Chrissy, you tell them. You know, they're all, you know, no one's even aware that I'm, there or anything so I'm kind of I crept out and that was one of the things after that I said fuck I'm going back to Australia so you just ran away <laughs> left, the, left the gig halfway through. oh yeah yeah you know and the guys in the band called up to apologize because I mean it was like I had no idea though Fair, well she sounds kind of like she could have been kind of dangerous <laughs> well <laughs> yeah, oh, I had a few of those kind of experiences but the thing was, was like that was one of the things that prompted me hey it's time to go back to Australia mm-hmm. but I mean I didn't I came back and forth a lot of times right okay you yeah. know because I mean you know Mm-hmm. All kinds of things would happen and they'd change and all the mm. rest of it, you know. But those kind of things prompted me to, oh, now's the time. I'm getting out of here for a while. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So having spent all that time in the States, uh, do you feel, like, really strongly connected with, like, jazz as, as a genre? Like, do you oh, feel... Oh, yes. As a genre, yeah. yes. But not, not, not the way that... For me, in the period I grew up in, jazz was always about personal expression. Mm. It was not about trying to play a style yes. or anything like that. Everyone, that. Everyone that I ask this question about what the word jazz actually means to them, they always say something along the lines of it's an attitude or it's an it approach. Is. It is. It's not a set of sounds. Yes. But, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. That's what it is. 
Right. Do you think some of that is lost in today's like jazz Absolutely. education? Yeah. Because it's not a jazz. We don't live in a jazz world. <laughs> what that, does that mean? Well, I mean, this is what it means. I mean, the, the music, musics are of their time. You know, I'm still a jazz musician. I still, you know, but it's changed quite a bit. And I think as musicians, it doesn't matter what idiom you play, whether classical music, I mean, Baroque had a period, you know, like, you know everything had these little periods. Uh -huh. And even with Mozart, I mean, he had to kind of th figure out a, a way. His, his, he lost popularity because he was on a certain style of the way with mm -hmm. his opera, you know. I mean, it's, it doesn't last forever. Yeah, but but, the, that's but the, okay. yeah, but the essence is the essence of it does. Mm, mm. But the thing is that that has changed a lot in today's world because the world has changed so much. And I I say politically because it's mm. jazz is a political thing. It is, yeah. You know, yeah. So it's like you know, I like I'm not totally naive. I knew nothing about any of this stuff. You know, it's all emotional to me. Right. Okay. okay. But that's but nonetheless, looking at it now. From the, from the vantage point, I can see, oh, yeah, that's what it was all about. Right. You know? So people that choose to go and study jazz these days, I think a lot of it is just being drawn to those things we, we just mentioned about, you know, individual expression. and Yes. And for, I mean, every first-year jazz student has a different sense of what they want to ultimately sound like or what they're in, in it for. So even though the maybe like the heyday of jazz seems to be in the past, like what, what do you think those people should uh, be thinking about in terms of what they want to work towards? Because it's kind of depressing just to think, oh, well, jazz is dead, you know? Well, yeah, I hate but jazz is not that. dead. Good. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm the, glad to hear you say the that. Style, <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, I think about these questions all the time, mm. you know, and I do feel kind of like, you know, a little bit out of it in many ways because it's, because we, we're living in a funny we're going through a funny period. Mm -hmm. We really are, you know. That's for sure. You know, yeah. and, and and jazz is like jazz has so much to offer, mm -hmm. so much to offer. Mm -hmm. The essence of the music, and it's not a stylistic thing. It's the, mm -hmm. who, who knows what it's going to sound like, and you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, even even with in, in the period I came through, there was there's still a thousand flowers blooming. Of course, yeah. you know, yeah. that's the way it should be. Yeah, you know, and you try to and and the beauty about jazz is that it's a, it's a real. Uh, it's in the moment. Mm -hmm. It really is. That's the beauty of the jazz. It's not a stylistic thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I'd heard stories from years ago, like some of these people, like uh, I think it might have been even Mark Isaacs, working in Israel, mm -hmm. when uh, the band leader, you know, you had to learn the solos. You had to learn, if you played a tune by Horace Silver, you had to play like Horace Silver. And oh, all, gosh. You, you know, right. that's to me anathema. That's totally, that's like, uh -huh. Not what it's about at all. Right. So do you? What about like learning standards? Do you oh no, that's, that's a whole other thing. I think mm. that's really important. Mm. So you, you know? don't think that anyone could sort of call themselves a jazz musician without without spending some time learning the quote unquote history, for want of a better term? Well, or, I don't know. Huh? I, I never felt history was part of it. For mm. me, jazz was always like a, a contemporary music. Having said that. You know, and I've been around it a long time. I go back and listen to older music now, and can really see the value in it. Mm. But it was never about trying to play historically like anybody. Like mm. the the first music that turned me on mm. was in New Zealand. I heard it on the radio. I was about twelve or thirteen. Mm. It was Charlie Parker at Massey Hall. <laughs> that was the first music I heard that really got me excited. There you go. You know, yeah. I mean, I didn't know anything else. Yeah. You know, mm. so, so it's like. The music, it has so much to offer people, and it has so much, 
it, it, the thing that gets me is when I see the vitality of the move of the music being cut off, mm. you know, which would, can, can happen through. Let's face it, jazz education has become a big business. I was just about to ask you how you think jazz education is succeeding and failing. Yeah, so, well, please. <laughs> well, as far as I'm concerned, it's 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 a business, and and that's not that's not necessarily. I mean, it's. There's not an easy answer to this question, mm. but, and, and, I, and I don't say that it shouldn't be a business, you know, I'm not, I'm not against that, you know, like, it's the, it's the emphasis, it's, it's, again, it comes back to that phrase that you mentioned, that, you know, it ain't what you, it's how you, mm. it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uh, paradoxes here. You know, we, 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 there is, it's all paradox, you've got to be open to these things, mm -hmm. you know, there's not one way or anything else, but... It is paradoxical, you know, but it's the emphasis. Mm -hmm. And like jazz has become such a big business. Jazz education. Yes, yeah, jazz yeah. education. Jazz e but it's also become like with the jazz too, because mm -hmm. it didn't used to be like that. And the thing is, it's become big business like festivals. It's all about name value. It's about, mm -hmm. it's not about the, the music itself speaking to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that might still happen. But it's kind of like, that's not the emphasis. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. all about, you know, like showbiz. Yeah, and there's quite a few like associations with the word jazz now. And all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's hard to... All that stuff. That. Which is, which for someone like myself, that's really kind of, it's more than disappointing. It's really kind of like gut-wrenching, really. Yeah, you know? you know? yeah. So, um, let's just change course <laughs> slightly before we get too depressed about that. What's the what's the worst advice and the best advice that you've ever been given? Uh, that I had to think a lot about those things, uh, and I, let me just think because I've had you know probably the best advice is oh, I did have to write it down because I thought there's a lot of things that, that have been said. Um, yeah, to always take responsibility. To be responsible. That's that, the best advice. Absolutely. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a hard one yeah. because that's a real hard one, but it's a very empowering one. You know, I mean, that if, if you can really take do that. I mean, not that I can, but I try to be aware of that. You know, mm -hmm. instead of blaming, oh, I can't do this because of. Hey, if you can start with, I'm responsible mm -hmm. for everything that happens in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, to whatever, and you can get really heavy with that. <laughs> yeah. But that's actually so empowering. It's much better that you're responsible because then you can do something about exactly. it. Exactly. If it's someone else's fault, then you're just a victim. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you think that that somehow, like, is married with? I always feel like the philosophy of individuality really works with jazz. Like you were saying, it's a political thing. This idea of personal accountability and personal expression and. Yeah, I, I see like I see those two things as married together. Like it's like a philosophy for living as well as like a philosophy for making music. Oh, absolutely! You can't have one without the Absol other. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And it's it's interesting. Like usually, the the musicians that you really love, it's not just the notes they play; it's yeah, the way not. they are. Mm. And and on the surface, I mean, you know, they may a lot of these people may seem like really despicable people, you know. <laughs> 
But there's a core mm-hmm. that seems to come through, and it really is about that core. And it's kind of, it can be kind of paradoxical and contradictory and all that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. because some of these people have been assholes, to put it nicely, you know, you know. They make up for it though, in some ways. Well, yes, they do. There's this, mm. you, you know, you, you, you got to go through it deeper and deeper. It's, mm-hmm. it, but it's true, you know. Like I mean, there's a core of real beauty there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. which is really it's what you're aiming for beauty that's what I'm aiming for anyway you know so another thing you mentioned before we started recording was that you feel like the sense of music or I don't know if you said jazz or just music in general having having meaning sometimes gets lost today absolutely absolutely right. and I, I hear a lot of you know current music you know like a, mm. and it, and I've talked to a lot of people about this Mm. And particularly people, not so much my age, but of my persuasion, mm-hmm. will say the same thing. What does that uh, mean, your persuasion? Well, people that have been around long enough to have some kind of perspective on the things. Some you taste. Know. <laughs> well, no, I don't, okay. well, everyone's got different tastes, you know, like I said. But, <laughs> but it, it, there, is a, there is an age divide. Mm-hmm. A generation, it's a generational divide, you know. Mm-hmm. You know and it, things are different. You know, and quite often as you get older, you you kind of get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more open to things. Mm-hmm. You know, not you know a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more understanding. You you realize the importance of this. Mm-hmm. You're trying to look a little bit deeper of things, and mm-hmm. it's not you know. Because when you're young, you've got different different things that drive you. Yeah. You know, and you're more vulnerable to being kind of swept up. All know? that stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed about, and I've only been in the states for eight months. Um, so this might be like a very superficial observation and I'm wondering what you think about it. But, um, I feel like because of the U S tipping culture, and I don't know if that was tipping, tipping culture. So the fact that musicians work for tips, oh, right. um, that, that, see, that was um, never, that never, you call it that. Oh. No, we never did that. Oh, really? We okay. never did that. So you get paid by the venue directly or yes, in the right. old days. Absolutely. Oh, okay. I, mean, I never had any experience of that. Right, so you wouldn't, then this question might not be... But still, I'm interested to hear what you're saying. I feel that because I'm working for tips now, I have to really think about engaging my audience in a way that I didn't have to think about in Sydney. I felt like a lot of the time in Sydney I could be, and this is my fault, This this is the whole being accountable thing, I could get quite complacent and comfortable because... The venue was was paying me no matter what. It didn't matter whether I engaged with my audience or whether we had a meaningful exchange. But I really feel that working in New York City, like in a piano bar, working for tips, I feel like a sense of accountability to the audience. And I actually find it really motivating. And at the end of the night, I feel like I get this direct feedback as to whether I really delivered for that audience and I really paid attention well, that's, um, that's in a, the form that's of a tip jar, but yeah. you didn't used to have that. Yeah. I've never had that experience. Yeah. The closest thing that I've, I've had like that, I remember playing, I, I'd been playing at a club called The Both End in, in uh, San Francisco, and I'd been playing opposite the Bill Evans trio, I think, with my trio. I, I think I think that's what it was. Yeah. Or Bill Evans was doing a thing with Eddie Gomez, just the duo or something, but it was, I'd been, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself. You know? <laughs> and I got this gig, uh-huh. you know, and it was at a piano bar. Mm-hmm. And that, the piano bar was like... Uh, you know the the bars on the piano. Uh-huh. You ever seen those? They yeah, yeah. Them, they know? like go around. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know? It's so nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the place was full. I sat down and started playing, and and the place emptied. Oh. 
And I felt really bad, you know. And I'm trying every trick in the book that I can think of. You know, I'm playing as fast as I can. I'm doing everything, you know, and people are trying to be helpful. But every time I'd, I'd sit, you know, the place would be empty. And I was totally demoralized oh, from sad. going from the high of, you know, yeah, this. Yeah. So I go to the bar. And it looks like the, the barman's not going to pay me something. I was like, he's good oh, to get no. the bread. And there was this guy down the end of the bar. He says, hey, buddy. He says, uh, he says, he says, I've been sitting here listening to you play all night long. You know, he's obviously a little bit drunk. Mm. He, says, he says, come over here. He says, he says I want to tell you something. He says, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, great. At least this one guy here mm -hmm. knows my worth. He says, mm -hmm. he says, I've been sitting here listening to you play all night long. He says, and you know something? He says, Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. He says, you're not that bad. Oh, ouch. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So what do you do with that experience? Did you go back? Did you keep working there? No, no, it? no. That that was, no. <laughs> I don't think they would have had me back. <laughs> yeah, you win some, you lose some, I guess. Well, I've never had any success with that kind of gig, you see, right, ever, right. ever. I, I thought I'd do that back in Australia. Mm. I, I've never had any success. I can never play fast enough or slow enough or whatever or quiet enough. Or right. I just don't. I I just don't function in that. I never. I just don't function in that situation. Everyone flourishes in different yeah, contexts, yeah. I guess. Because um... I was always my whole thing was like my whole approach to music was listen to me. Mm -hmm. Not play background. I mean, I did, it was just mm -hmm. what I always did. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about it. That's what I'm. Hey, mm -hmm. listen to me. Mm -hmm. That's cool. <laughs> Do you reckon that ties in with your like sense of like personal accountability? Like, Could? Sort of... I don't know. So, what, at what point in your life did you start really like living by that that idea, that advice? Well, I don't know that I did it. it like, I I did a thing called a course called EST, Earhart Seminars Training. Mm -hmm. back in San Francisco and it was like one of those courses uh, people would call it mind uh, washing brainwashing and shit like that. or maybe it was but it was very very intense mm -hmm. and it was like one of the first of those kind of courses that, that flourished for a while and they're still they're still around they call them different things the forum and stuff like this you know the forum yeah you've heard mm -hmm. of that yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> sounds <I> mean, ominous <laughs> well it yeah, but it was pretty... For me, it was fantastic. So what, what did they train you to do? What was well, that? you meet with 250 people, you know. I mean, you, you have these preliminary meetings, mm -hmm. and the whole idea is then you... And they have a set of rules that you have to abide by. Mm -hmm. You know, you really have to abide by these rules, you know, and you, you promise to. And then you have... You've got two weekends where you're going to be in this hotel room, big, big hotel, like a ballroom, you know, with 250 other people that you don't know. What's what rules like a code of conduct? Well, I'll tell you, this um, is the kind of thing you know, like I mean, you're not allowed to have any food on you, you're not allowed to, have, you're not allowed to take any food into the place, okay? You're not allowed to have a watch, okay? You know, it's quite, it's quite, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not difficult, uh huh, you know, and you abide by this, you say, okay, and you've got to be there on time, uh -huh. if you're not there on time, that's it, and the time might be nine o'clock, shut the door, shut, that's it. But you can blame it on the fact that you didn't have a watch. <laughs> no, no, no. If you go at home, you can't take the watch with you. Oh, but I see. Once you, once you go inside, you've yeah. got to kind of, in other words, you're really in your own world. And you're just at their mercy. You can't even go to the bathroom. You can't do anything unless they say, unless you, if you have a medical condition, you can tell them beforehand. Uh -huh. Otherwise, if you haven't made any kind of excuses like that, 
you've got to abide by their rules and it can be heavy uh-huh. you know it can be and but the, my point is this you go in and you've got 250 people there and there's people and you, you paid all this money yeah. with a lot of money in those days you know mm. and the thing doesn't start because what what do they do they just take you through this trip they want to make sure as everybody because someone will say oh, oh look I've got this watch it doesn't work I haven't <sighs> uh, get it out Get rid of it, you know. I've got the sandwich at home. I'm not, I'm not going to eat it. You know. So they're just or, testing you by making you sit there. Well, you know, because people will keep, you know, saying, well, oh, by the way, does this, would this matter? Is this, you know. Oh, my gosh. And, wow. and, and everyone's getting really pissed off now, really. And there was one guy that refused to take his hat off. Uh-huh. He refused to take his hat off. Oh he wouldn't gosh. take his hat off. So much pride. And, and they got him on stage of every, and all these, in front of 250 people and the guy would not take his hat off. The guy says, look, you either take your hat off or you've got to go. Uh-huh. The guy went. Oh my gosh. But he wouldn't take his hat and off. he spent all that money. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So what was the, like, what, what are they telling you that they're going to teach you to do? Well, whatever. You've agreed to do something. It's about your word, you know. About you know, you're given your word and uh, what's the word? Just be, you know, do what you say you're gonna do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it, it gets right out. It gets right out. Mm-hmm. It gets. But it's 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 quite an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. You know. And so is it a is it a, like a relationships? Is it for um, improving relationships or improving Anything. your yourself? Com- right. Your, your relationship with the world, I guess. Yeah. Okay. You know. So you got a lot out of it by the sound. Of I did. And yeah. the, but the thing is, what I really got when it really hit me is, you know, like you know, because we, there's levels and levels of course. When it, the, what happened the second time we went, the second week, mm. you go there and you're you kind of think, yeah, I'm really I'm cool because you know that's how we ask people, mm-hmm. as humans. We get there, and there's a different trainer taking it, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh my god, what happened to that cat? Because you've, you've built up a little rapport with this person, mm-hmm. even though you haven't spoken to him. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, it's like. This guy's led you through all this stuff, you know, and he's, he's going to do it again. Mm-hmm. He's not there. Mm-hmm. Someone else is going to do it. It's like, oh, fuck. You, you know? think they did that on purpose? Of course. <laughs> Everything of course. Right. Of course. It's, uh-huh. it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really interesting thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what happened at the end of it all, you know, we spent, we, and, you get, you know, and you sometimes stay up like till maybe you'd leave there at 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever, 4 mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and you had to be back there at 9, ready to go. And not to be late. No complaints, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. You know, that, you know, uh-huh. and, you know, you haven't eaten or you've eaten just a little bit or whatever they've let you do, you know, and it's, it's pretty out. But it's intense. It shows you what you can do and what you can achieve, uh-huh. you know, with, because some amazing things happen. You realize that you've got all this power as creatures, uh-huh. you know. But anyway, to, when I really got it was at the end of the thing, I go after the guy because he was from Australia. And uh-huh. that, you know, I was, oh, fuck. And I haven't been back to Australia like in 10, 15 years by this yeah. time. Uh-huh. Great. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm bonded, you know, I'm going to this cat. And uh, I said something to the guy, you know, at the end of the year, everyone's saying, you know, how much they've enjoyed it or whatever they're saying, you know. Yeah. And I says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm from Australia or something. And he said, so? Oh, gosh. That's when I got it. Right. That's when I realized, absolutely, who gives a shit? <laughs> It's about getting off it. Uh-huh. Getting off it. That's how... Yeah. It's about get off your shit. Mm-hmm. Get off it. Mm-hmm. So th- this has had a big effect on me, if you can imagine. You know. Did it affect... So how did it... Did it affect the way you make music? Of course. Like, I mean, it, in what it, way? Well, because you, I've changed a bit. Uh-huh. 
in, in this process. This is all part of the life process, but that's what making music's about. It's about getting off shit all the time. Getting off your, getting past your ego. Okay. Ideally. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that yeah, I still, look, we, look, these are like onions. Yeah. They, they just keep, you know, it keeps on. I'm not Infinite s- layers I, of ego. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But you make an attempt. And that's what the whole thing's about. You know, try to, un, you know, unravel the onion or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's not, there's no point at which you say. Actually, funnily enough, I was doing a gig with uh, Lee Konitz. And uh, Lee Konitz is a Scientologist. And he had just joined Scientology. You know, and, and we, he, he, we'd driven all the way from uh, New Jersey, from New York to New Jersey, to this club that's in the outback somewhere in New Jersey. It might have been, there's a few clubs in New Jersey. Anyway, he's been telling me the whole trip nonstop about how he's, he's now a superior being, you know, you know because he's, he's, him and his wife had invested all this money. I think he spent $40,000, which at that time... spend that much money, you better be a superior well, being yeah, but, yeah, but Listen to the kappa. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, he's telling me all this stuff and we're driving to the gig and everything. All of a sudden, he realizes he's helplessly lost, has no idea where he is. Uh-huh. We're on the way to the gig and he's telling me that he's a superior being <laughs> and he can't even find, he can't even find his way to the club. Did you say that to him? No, of course I didn't say that to him. I mean, come on. You know. We got there an hour late, of course, mm-hmm. and he was in a foul mood, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, wow. So can you tell... Okay, so do you ever try to, to tell this to someone directly about peeling away the layers of the ego? Does it ever go down well when you actually no. try to say it? You just try and let people figure it out for themselves? Or, well, I'm not... Yeah. A, if, I was, if that was my role, that's not yeah, my yeah. role. Okay. My role is just to try to make music. Uh-huh. Uh, look and look. Hey, I'm I'm not any better than anybody else. <laughs> I've got my own problems. You yeah, know. We all do. Yeah. I mean, you know, you try to be, you know, I mean, you try to be helpful and to pull people's coats, but that's almost the wor- the worst thing you can do is say, hey, you know, mm-hmm. you're not doing it right, or mm-hmm. you you're this or you're that or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the things that's uh, like the way I learned to play was playing with with these guys who. Are, some guys didn't even like me, like you know, some of these black cats didn't like because I'm white. What are you doing in this band, kind of thing? Right. You know. Wow. And you got to deal with it. Yeah. Because you want to play music, mm-hmm. and you maybe you didn't even dig their playing, but you you know, but you had a gig and you're playing jazz, mm-hmm. so you know, like you, that was the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And 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 the thing is, so you put up with shit because you've got a higher goal. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's always been music has always kind of reigned supreme of all. Absolutely. All of the, Kind of other superficial it, absolutely things. it has to mm-hmm. I mean maybe not nowadays it's, it's a different world nowadays I know and this is what I was talking about about the lack of passion mm-hmm. I mean in those days to many 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 of us it was life and death mm-hmm. it really was not to me personally I wasn't but I mean I, it was my living totally mm-hmm. my living playing jazz was my living you know I mean you know I mean I go hungry a lot of the time but to a lot of the fans, it was like that. The yeah. fans would really take it on board. So what do you think that living in a really peaceful, prosperous society, <laughs> do you think that makes it, in some way, it's like it's, it's almost too easy? And that, does that detract from the meaningfulness of the music? Well, it does. Or, right. There's no question about that. But that doesn't mean to say that, that, that the belittles the music or, or cheapens or, does, or, or doesn't make the music as good as it, as, as it is. Mm. It's... It's different. 
things change, things evolve, mm. you know. And I, you know, like I mean, I often feel I can't say a lot of this stuff normally to people because you know, I mean, if people don't know me, well, I can. And but yeah. but basically, you know, you misunderstood, <laughs> and that's okay, you know. If you're un- misunderstood by like ninety five percent of the people, you know, as long as five percent of them understand. <laughs> Whatever. That's how I view it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but yeah. you may be right. I mean, you know, but 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 you know, we are misunderstood. We we this is a, this is a different culture. Yeah. It really is a different culture. And the thing is, I'm I'm from this culture. Yeah. And that was one I always felt was one of my big advantages from being the, in the U.S. And when American musicians would come out here, I felt I had an insight into things that not many people would have. Right. Because I could see both sides. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that? Um, musicians and people who call themselves artists, maybe for want of a better term, but do you feel like there's a responsibility to try and engage with what's happening in the world and like reflect the times? I've I've heard Nina Simone say that before, like an artist's job is to reflect the times. Whereas I feel like for some people it's easy, and this is, everyone's different, but for some people it's more about trying to uh, kind of mirror a craft that already exists or, or reach this kind of pinnacle um, standard f- in terms of like a criteria for what it is to be a really accomplished jazz musician or whatever whatever criteria it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Well, I tend to go with Nina Simone's thing, even mm. even though it doesn't seem like I, I do that, because we all have different ways of expressing this, Yeah. you know. But at the heart of everything, this is actually one of my existential problems living in Australia, and tr- is how can one connect and, and with the larger issues, yeah. particularly playing jazz. It's yeah. probably easier as a singer-songwriter, you know, but, but I say probably, I'm not saying necessarily. I think easier. when you can use words, it is, it is always easier to try and In some ways. Things. Yeah, yes. I find it easier, but yeah. that's, that's me, yeah. But, you know, but it's, it's, and also it's harder in Australia because you've got to find musicians who are really understand what you so you have a real shared vision now, i don't find that here even though i've got some cats that i love, love dearly and all the rest and, and play with for years and years mm. it's still not the same experience that i have mm, okay and it's a different experience when i play with certain cats back in the states mm-hmm. it's like immediate it's another world mm-hmm. it's another world yeah so you you never considered moving back again well no because i have considered it many times mm-hmm. but you know it's like uh, Look, hey, I'm not a young cat anymore, for one thing, <laughs> you know. And it's, so that there's a fantasy, and, and it, it's not just all about. I mean, music is central to my life. Mm. So if I can't just live my life, that uh, I mean, I've been there, done that. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So I've got to find ways to kind of uh, uh, bring what I've learned and and bring it here with me, mm-hmm. whatever that is, mm-hmm. you know. And so, like, I'm, I'm interested in a, a range of stuff, although, I mean, I'm interested in electronics, I'm interested in this and that and other things. You know, yeah. Basically, I'm a jazz musician. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a basically, I'm an intuitive jazz musician. That's mm-hmm. what my basic thing is. No matter what I do or try to get away from, that's what I do. And no matter where you live as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know? So you, that's just what I do. And, that's, and so you try to make... And if you get an opportunity to do something, which is one of the things that's happened to me back in Australia, I've had more opportunities to do things that I would never have had in the States, I don't think. Or maybe I would have, but I don't know. But I got them here anyway. I got I think these Australia opportunities. Australia is the land of opportunity. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and, and that's, mm-hmm. that's been fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's been fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I see people back in New York that have just stayed, you know, tried and true jazzes all their life. Mm-hmm. That's not what it's about for me. You want to keep reinventing Yes, yourself. absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm, really, I'm fascinated by the fact that you found that in Australia. I would have thought that it would be the opposite. The sort of, the chance to reinvent yourself and keep um, finding new avenues. I would have thought that would be the experience you'd have in the States. But it's It's really internal. Okay. It's internal. Uh-huh. You know? Mm. It's more like an attitude. You it mean, is. Like the... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? So, all right. So the best advice, this was like 15 minutes ago. Or 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> best advice was to, to be responsible for your own yes, shit, yes, basically. Yes, yes, What about the worst advice? Do you have an answer to that question? Well, <laughs> no. Well, you, you haven't asked me. Well, I'll ask you now. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I thought about this too. What's the worst advice? Hmm. <laughs> So I thought, well, the worst advice is to never question authority. Mm, never question, you know, because that was the thing, like, I was brought up a Catholic. And, really? And, yeah, and so some of the things that you found in, 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 at school, you don't question certain things. You do not question. Mm-hmm. This is the word of God or whatever. You don't question it. Mm-hmm. And if you question it, you know, you're going to get your mouth scrubbed out or something or whatever. It's like, but you know... Questioning, this is where fascism comes from. Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. You know? And it's the antithesis of Absol- jazz every, as well. Everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of life. Yeah. You know? So was that, do you reckon that becoming a jazz musician was like kind of a rebellion against that restrictive way of being? Well, to me, becoming a jazz musician was my father died. I was, I was an altar boy and all that shit. And he used to go to the church and, you know... And my father died at home. Uh, what happened one morning? He, he had a heart condition and he was having a, a fit that he shouldn't have. And so the doctor came and I had to, I had to run to the doctor. And I guess it was one of those things that I had, uh, it was a small town, you know. And I'm thinking, oh shit, you know, I've got to go to the doctor again. Go, 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 I've got to, you know, I'm a little kid, you know, not a little kid, but 10 or 11, something like that. And I kind of dawdled, you know, you know, because maybe we didn't have a phone. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the doctor came, and uh, the doctor gave my father this injection, and everyone felt the injection was too strong. Maybe I, maybe I'd even brought it about. I, who knows? I, you know, I felt it wasn't guilt, but I just felt, you know, like mm. something hadn't happened right. Mm. And he died right there, you know. And I was, I was praying to God, 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 you know, don't, you know, whatever. And he, and my father died, you know, while I, while I was there, you know. So that's when I renounced the church. Right, well, at know. the age of 10. Or it might have been 11 or 12, I'm not Still. sure, you know. And jazz became my religion because my <laughs> father had just started teaching me the piano. Uh-huh. And I'd started listening to, like, jazz a little bit, you know, like, and heard. And the local pharmacist was a... Was, uh, uh, a jazz piano player, a really good jazz piano player, and he used to give me these, remember those ten-inch or twelve-inch records? You know, you put them on, and mm-hmm. the record players you could—they weren't—they weren't like CDs or anything mm-hmm. like that. They were terrible, you know. But, but he gave me to Art Tatum and George Shearing. One of the first things he ever gave me was George Shearing playing tenderly, and he would just say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, listen to this song," and I'd try and play like it. 
Uh-huh. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh-huh. And this guy was, was something else. And he, he, used to, he used to play professionally. I lived in a town of 2,000 people. And then the pharmacist was actually a, a jazz piano player. Mm-hmm. You know, he had very small hands and he made himself a little kind of... Did you ever see that movie, The Piano? Yes. That little thing that, that, that they... Yeah, the, the sheath? The metal thing, yeah. That's what, that's what he had. Oh this my gosh. Like, so, so he had I, lost a finger. No, no, he had small. He had small fingers. He wanted the tenth out. Oh. he had fingers. You know. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Well, he did it. Okay. That's this is the, this is the, where we come from. You just wow. hey, my fingers aren't big enough. I'll put something on them. And they had a little cork. Quite stuck. simple, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he had a little cork stuck in the end. Oh. You know, so it wouldn't damage the keys. And that's and he would tenth out. Mm-hmm. And he, he gave me tiger rag with the art tatum uh-huh. and and all that stuff. And also what what was also an inspiring moment for me when I was a little kid. About the time, must have been after my father died, so I must have been about, I was still 12, wasn't any older than that. I'd gone to Auckland, which is like 70 miles away, to hear Nat King Cole play. Amazing. And that was amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, Nat King Cole, there by myself, you know, kid of 12. You know? Wow. And that had a huge effect on me. Had Nat you King heard him Cole. before? Had his I might have heard him record, I'm not sure. Mm. He's something else. Yeah, he's something else. <laughs> totally something else. And there I was, Nat King Cole, yeah. in this little tiny hall. I mean, it's a small it's a town hall, but it's not very big uh-huh. like the day standards. And that kind of really blew my mind. You know? So these records that, was it the pharmacist you said? Yeah. I get the impression that um, music used to be sort of consumed like one album at a time for a period well, we of time. We didn't have albums. Have these, these, these weren't albums. These were... Well, you know what I mean. These were a track. Right, okay. So one track at a time, on yeah. repeat for a very long period of time. And then Probably, you can... yeah. So, whereas today, you can I just know, do... absolutely, absolutely. That has That's a lot a... of benefits, but at the same time, it's a... It's... It takes a while to... You don't really get really familiar with any one piece of music. Exactly. So, and what you do you think don't. that does to the... To I think the it makes for the music... Look, the thing is, one... To me, it's about really focusing on something and really getting inside it. Mm. That's and then when you've done that, it's like if you have, then you can kind of take that anywhere. Mm. You so know? you think spend a lot of time on a small number of things I rather think, than a little bit of time on a lot of things. I think so. And then yeah. you can do all that. Right. You know? But but it's it's about focusing on. Look, I mean, I think there'll be the same thing with good classical teachers, wouldn't they teach you that to really focus on certain things that are really important at the beginning? I hope so, yeah. You know? Yeah. And this kind of affects everything else that you do after that. Mm-hmm. You know? So you think that um, the infinite availability of everything it's on the internet is, is a bit it's, of a distraction? It, absolutely. Yeah. Ab- no question. Absolutely. And how the hell can you respond emotionally? Yeah, You, you, okay. you can't. And this idea as well that um, there's lots of music that you actually don't respond to until you've heard it five or six times. Well, that's also true. But that doesn't. Yeah, you kind of miss that now because you can have your first impression, and if you don't like it, you can just exactly carry on to the next thing. Exactly, yeah. and you miss out on stuff that might be really meaningful to you. Maybe we should all deliberately restrict ourselves. Of course we should. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, of course we're not One going to. One track for this week. But we're not going to, are we? No, because you know? the temptation is always there. Well, it's, we're living in a different age. And it's addictive as well. It being is. Able to, being able to just kind of access whatever you want, whenever you want. It's really hard to restrict yourself. Well, you know, yeah. a friend of mine, was, was he was uh, running the, the, the thing for ECM mm-hmm. back in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came up to my house and he gave me, I thought, oh, maybe I went out to his place and he said, help yourself. So I got about 20 ECM records, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the 
I take them home, and there wasn't one record that I liked. Uh-huh. Because too much choice. You put it on once, ah. Yeah, yeah, right. You didn't I, have to invest any exactly. energy in trying to like exactly. it. Exactly. Um, if you put one on, and that's that's the one record, you're going to listen to it a little bit. And just like you say, after a while, you might say, well, gee, that's pretty interesting. Mm, you know? I'm going to try and deliberately, like, <laughs> I'm going to try don't, and pause Don't myself. quote me. Don't blame no, no, me. No, because no, I had that experience when I was younger, like, you know, just having, like, my dad play a record repeatedly in the car and it might take me like three years yes. but then I would get it yes. and that moment yeah. that you get it but you don't I don't really have that experience anymore because I just if I don't like something I just palm it off and I go on to the next thing and it is unsatisfactory I have to say so yeah you might be onto something but these, but these are, but look I know this is right but the thing is we're living in a different age yeah. So I don't know. These, there are these, pros and cons. Yeah. yeah well, these are the things I deal with all the time. Literally, I mean, I do. I really think about this stuff, and I, I feel, as a musician, I really often feel, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I really kind of get really, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Mm. You know, because it really helps to have a focus. I have heard you say, at least on one occasion, that it's when you don't know what you're doing that you feel like it's you've actually got to that place well no true yeah. absolutely I wouldn't I'm not, but this is not I'm thinking not what I'm doing this is thinking not what, this is thinking what I'm I don't know what I'm doing in a different way Nothing. Oh, right. I'm not just talking you're about musically you're not talking about like on the band no no you're no yeah, about, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think it's great to not know what you're doing in the band I think that's one of the things that again happens when you study too much right you become too aware oh. it's very hard to get past that stage of just like trust yourself that's what trusting look mm. you do all the work you know, you, you work as hard as you can mm-hmm. and then let it, let it go. Really let it go and just be there. That's so hard. <laughs> of course it is. Okay. Of course it is. Right. But this is the crux of it. This is the real shit. This is when the shit really happens. Mm-hmm. You know? And you may stumble and just be like shit or what. I mean, Miles Davis, you know, he's always been my musical idol. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in the early days, you know. Mm-hmm. And Miles Davis... He's been likened to like when he plays, it's like a kid playing, mm-hmm. you know. And he hardly used to practice. I mean, when he was young, he did, of course. Right. You know, but he he picked the horn up and just kind of blob it. it and it's it's always I have this problem with practicing these days. How to how to practice. And yet, because you've got to practice just to kind of move your fingers mm. in, and 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 so much I can't do and all the rest of it, all that stuff, and you and you want to be able to do it better and all that shit, mm. you know. But the whole creative thing is like, mm. is not that. And how do you, how do you combine, mm. as a creative musician, as a jazz musician, which is, we're basically composers in real time, you know? I don't know, I'm, yeah, I have exactly the same problem. Well, the I'm sure you The stuff that I start practicing is, at the moment I, I practice all these kind of physical, technical things because it's the easy thing to practice. The easiest thing to practice is just technical stuff. The hardest thing to practice is being creative. Well, it, it, it is. It's very yeah. difficult. I find it difficult. Yeah. It's extremely difficult. Yeah. You know. And sometimes you actually need other people to to kind of create that sense of. Well, that's true. That's all. Yeah. Look, it's just, the thing is, it's a shared concern. Mm. You know, yeah. I'm sure there's thousands upon thousands yeah. of piano players that could be having this conversation. Yeah, for sure. For you sure. know. Mm. So what what is your method for? 
I'd like to know what your method is if you have one for composing and for practicing piano or if it's changed over time or well uh, it's in the first place com composing has always been an emotive issue for me it's it's like I used to spend a lot of time I mean when I when I when I was real young I didn't know much about music I learned I learned piano uh, through a course called Art Shift. And Art Shift was a course, a shifty you might say. It, it was a course that, this is how I started. My very first song was Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mm -hmm. C chord, F, G, you know. Mm -hmm. D, 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 D. So everything that the book taught was like chords and melody. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what a scale was until I'd been playing for about five years. I had no idea. Lucky you, huh? Well, yeah. <laughs> but I had no idea about anything. Yeah. You know, that's what I did. And, and even when I went to piano teachers, all they would ever do would just give me some sheet music and say, play this. Mm -hmm. I never had anyone that actually taught me anything about playing the piano. I had no idea, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when I finally went to New York and, and got this teacher called Lucy Green, mm -hmm. she I think Mark Isaac studied with her and a few other people. Lucy was known for like uh, taking people uh, who had ruined their chops and uh, kind of building them up again. Rehabilitation. You know? Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and she listened to me play and she said, oh, she said, oh, very effusive play, praise. And she said, there's only one problem. I says, you know, I'm full of myself. I said, what's that? She says, you've got no idea what a piano is. <laughs> Huh? I had a moment like that. Oh my God. Yeah. I had that moment in New York just like six months ago. Did you? Yeah. My teacher said, do you know how the piano works? Exactly. That's and what I she said. I'm like, I think so. <laughs> no, I did not have any idea how my instrument actually works. Like in the sense, you know, actually understanding the, yeah, the mechanisms yes. and like the, the actual vital piece of information that you need to know. I didn't. I just had never thought about it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. I know what you mean. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, right, so what did she make you do? What did she do? She didn't make me do anything. She never taught me. I mean, she taught me heaps, but she never ever gave me anything to practice or uh -huh. anything. She would say, I'm working on your subconscious. Oh, that's scary. You know? <laughs> cool. So I'd just play pieces for her or whatever, and mm -hmm. she'd make comments sometimes. Sometimes she'd illustrate how she should be maybe or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I never learned any nuts and bolts about... And, and I had been studying classical piano at Berkeley. This is, this is after Berkeley. Right. And what the guy there had done to me, and I don't forget, I've never played classical music in my life, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, he had me playing uh, stuff I can't play now. A lot of the Chopin etudes, mm -hmm. quite a few of them, you know, the re revolutionary and things like that. And the I, I just worked my ass off. <laughs> uh, some Ravel. Mm. Jodo and stuff like that. But really, I didn't know what, I, but I worked my ass off mm -hmm. I, because I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing what you can accomplish like that. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. It, you know, I just worked hard. Yeah. You know. Would you recommend that to like any of your piano students now? No, because they wouldn't listen to me. Oh. My, 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 my piano students don't. I don't have any now anyway. But they don't <laughs> listen to me, and I don't think they ever did, mm -hmm. with few exceptions. Mm -hmm. There's always been a few exceptions, but basically, so I don't even try. Right. It's like you know. If you had the perfect student and they were incredibly receptive and didn't have an ego and. <laughs> <all> that, <laughs> what would you tell them? Like, what? How would you? How would you nurture them? Like, what? What? What would be your number one priority in terms of getting them to? Be well, if they've got all these things you said, they wouldn't need me to say anything to them. If they didn't have an ego. Yeah. yeah. 
That's a good point. I mean, just just be curious. I mean, curiosity is the thing that drives us, really. Yeah. Curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, curiosity is a great thing. If you're curious, like what I do, I, I, I read a lot of music. I played Bach for years, mm-hmm. totally badly, <laughs> totally bad. But I, I didn't know any better. But I tell you, it's, I always recommend that my students play Bach. Mm-hmm. Very few of them do, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that, that to me is, if you want to play jazz particularly, it's all in Bach. Mm-hmm. Well, I say it's not everything, but it's pretty much, that's the best grounding overall. There's, mm-hmm. lots, of, there's lots of musics to be sure, but Bach is like really, it's, right. it's, it's got t- rhythm, it's got everything. And what about like technical, like piano technique there. philosophies? So would you say that if you learn how to play the music from that, your technique will emerge? Like by default, or would you say that it's important to work on it as something separate? Well, no, I, I, I tell you what I did. I, I, my thing is not good because I'm not... That I, although I could play pretty good technically at one point until I injured myself. That was something uh, else again. You know? Right. Uh, not through playing the piano, but I injured myself anyway. So I had to kind of put it, put it aside. But up to that point, I, was, I, I had... I mean, it was terrible technique, I'm sure. <laughs> Because you know what I did? I, I spent, I got on my own steam, I, I had a little piano in Melbourne, I was living in Melbourne, put lead weights on it and, and played Hannon for hours. I played all books, three books, every time I sat down to play. <laughs> what <laughs> were the lead weights for? What, to dampen the sound? Or no, to make the it? lead weights are to make, make it heavier. So you'd be stronger? Yeah. So, ah, okay. So my piano teacher, my classical piano teacher couldn't believe how yeah. well I was. Right. Okay. So, do you do you value? I don't know. I don't. Like well, I did at the time yeah, because yeah. I could never seem to get enough sound out of yeah. the piano, and I still have. I've learned. Look, I've learned a whole lot about all of this stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I've that was a revelation to me in recent years too, like there was. I studied with another lady here called Lucy, Lucy Green, which was interesting because the lady in New York was also called Lucy Green. I was going to say that's crazy coincidence. Isn't it? <laughs> And she's a, a one yeah. hell of a pianist, this, this lady here. Uh-huh. But a little, she'd 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 gone to a really high level. I think she had a, a, a nervous breakdown. Uh-huh. You know, at, at the final stages of you know being in France and all that shit. Mm-hmm. And so she she was my teacher, but she used to also didn't really teach me anything. But she did. It was she's very, you know, she she was basically just really supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, what, what am I going to do with this? Technique, um, uh, lead weights on the piano, yeah, 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 strength. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what happened a little while ago? Uh, I came across this book called Piano Yoga. Oh. You know. I've you, heard about. This have book. you? I've never read it. Oh, you've Tell heard us it. about it. I've heard about it. Yes. Well, the thing about the book was it, it was mind-boggling. It blew my mind, mm-hmm. and I've I've given it to Jackson Harrison, and I haven't heard back from him because <laughs> I mean I've, I've been it's it's all. Tatted and told him, I said, Jackson, you got to give this back to me. So I'm, I'm going to get it back. To you, you know, but <laughs> I've memorized the book. Jackson. I've memorized the book, though. You know, uh-huh. you know. But the thing is, it's good to be reminded of things because it's, it's basically. Uh, I had all these problems, and, and that's why I went to see Lucy Green because what, what had happened at some point, my technique started getting. I started missing notes all of a sudden, and I started getting tighter, and I could. What the fuck's going on? Mm. You know, like what's you know all of a sudden really frustrating well yeah. worse than frustrating because you, you know like and I, it took me about two years to, to get my head back in shape because it's just, playing the piano is so psychological 
Yeah. You know? It, when did this happen? When did you have this? Oh, uh, it was a while ago now, 10 years ago, something like that. Uh-huh. Might have been 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it was scary when it happened because mm. it was like, what's going on? Mm. You know, and, and of course, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that starts happening. Mm. It doesn't just happen one day. It keeps happening and it's like, and so you're trying to do everything and you started to play. I, I came out of it by playing these mind games with myself mm-hmm. and having to have a different attitude mm-hmm. that, you know, changed my thinking about things. But also Lucy helped. Lucy Green helped him, mm-hmm. you know. But this book on piano yoga was actually really incredible because it had a... I didn't know any better. I used to play the piano like this because I thought this is how you're supposed to play, you know. You have to describe that to the listeners. Well, <laughs> well, you know, with the, you know, with the, with the bent fingers. Oh, the, the beautiful curve. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what that's what I thought you had to do. Mm-hmm. I thought that was what you did. Mm-hmm. The, piano talking, yoga yeah. is talking about this, playing like that. Flat fingers. Flat fingered. Uh-huh. And it was a revelation to me. It was a total revelation because it's not just flat fingers. Mm-hmm. It's also about widening the hand, stretching the hand. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and it's like, wow, because I mean. Now, of course, I just, I don't even think about it now, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I see that a lot of piano, Horowitz included, Herbie Hancock included, a lot of piano players play with flat fingers mm-hmm. a lot of the time, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Not like this. I mean, Melodious but, Monk, for sure. Well, he, yeah. oh, he's not really an example of a good piano player, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, right. no, you know. but Herbie and, yeah. and Horowitz. It's so funny how there are these things that you get taught and you just take them as the, yes, like gospel. Exactly. And then as soon as someone questions it, you realize instantly that all of your heroes like weren't actually following those yes, rules and it was yes. just this weird thing. Yes. It's so strange, isn't it? Well, yeah. I suppose you have growth. to though. Yeah, I suppose you have to like take some things and just assume that they are truth in order to get through you know, those first stages of your career. But it's so nice when someone just comes in and says, you know, like, have you ever thought that actually you don't have to do that? Yes, yeah, yes. It changes everything. Yeah. 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 So I have I have a handful more questions for you, um, not not particularly to, related to what we were just talking about, but I wanted to ask you about your label, Naxos Jazz. Uh-huh. Um, and in your role as the curator for that label, um, what did you feel was were your priorities and like how did well, you go about it? Well, in the first place, it wasn't my label. I was running the label. What right. happened is a guy called Klaus Heyman. You ever heard of Oh, Naxos, Naxos is a huge label. I don't, so you're not actually aware of Naxos. No, I'm ignorant. Please Okay, no, well, Naxos was, was actually, well, he's a businessman, yeah. a German businessman who lived in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I met him through my wife. Because his wife is a is a classical violinist, Takako uh, Nishizuki. She's she's had a huge hit in China, uh, the Butterfly uh, Concerto or something. Cool. You know. Yeah. You know, but she's a classical violinist and she plays that kind of thing. You know. Mm-hmm. And so my my wife Yuri, she she was uh, used to work with the uh, consulate, mm-hmm. and uh, so these ladies were kind of friendly. And so, after a series of misadventures, like meeting and going to the... The first time we were supposed to get together with, with Klaus, we went to this Chinese restaurant, and they didn't show up, and I was really pissed off. It turned out later, we were in a different restaurant. They were, they were a floor bus. <laughs> and I'm, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to have anything to do with this guy, blah, 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 all this shit. So finally we meet up, uh-huh. and, and we meet each other, and uh, he tells me very proudly that he's got a new jazz label. Mm-hmm. 
mm. he started his own jazz label, you know. Mm. And I said, well, I'm, I, he, says, I'd, he says, I'd love to give you some records. So you can, and of course, I'm just consumed with all those things. My oh, God, he's, what is this shit all about? You know, this guy's got this label, you know, and I'm, I'm, here I am in Australia, and, you know, there's nothing happening, you know. Uh-uh. And, okay. you know, yeah. this guy's a multimillionaire, you know, kind of thing, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck, anyway, so he sends me the CDs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't see him for a while because he's overseas and everything. And we meet up one day, kind of by accident, at a, at a consulate gathering. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Oh, by the way, he says, he says, did you get the CDs I sent you?" I said, "Yeah." He says, uh, "He says, what do you think of them?" Mm-hmm. So I, again, I just be honest, you know. I thought, oh, "Fuck it," you know. I just well, actually, I didn't think they were very good. He says, "No, very good. They were shit," you know. And you know what he said to me? He says, I agree. Ah, is that why you got the job? Well, that's what happened. <laughs> and, I, and I said, look, I says, if you, I says, class, if you want to do something like that, I mean, just talk to me, at least. I'm, I don't want any, yeah. you know. And so that was it. We didn't. Then the next time we came back to town, we, we got together and we, uh, we drank a bottle of wine together. Mm-hmm. And then he said to me, he says, he says uh, I'd like you to run the label. I said, mm. what? I says, you don't even know who I am. He says, I've spoken to a few people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started talking about budgets and everything. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And you could be honest as well. You well, yeah. Honest criticism. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Cool. And then. And it was an interesting thing because, I mean, I, w- I would have, I was really disappointed because it could have been, and it started out, it, was, it would look like it was going to be the success story of the decade, seriously, mm-hmm. because we had a Swedish uh, company that was taking care of business. Mm-hmm. And it was really, they knew what they, they knew the jazz and that was really, the sales were going through the roof, you know, like mm-hmm. it was really like, wow. Mm-hmm. And Klaus is a businessman. Mm-hmm. And he's first and foremost, and he, he's looking at the, the, the money thing first off, you know, and he decides to get this guy and this Chinese guy who knew nothing about anything. Uh, he, 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 he somehow rather, because you've got to understand what, what Someone like Klaus has been hit on by people all the time. Even that saying, get rid of this guy, me. You know, I said to Klaus, I said, Klaus, look, whatever these people tell you, you know, everyone's, when it comes to jazz, everyone's an expert. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows, so they think. Everyone knows. I know what to do. I know, yeah, everyone knows what to do. I mm-hmm. said, you made your choice. I'm your expert. So <laughs> live with it. And he did. It was cool. Mm-hmm. But he got this guy from China in. And what he did, because he, he wanted to sweeten the pot, he gave him his own record company. So this guy from China is now not only the the head of Naxos, uh-huh. supposedly, or you know, my in other words, I'm still running it, but he's answering to me or whatever. What, but the thing is, he's got his own label, New Age label, uh-huh. and it's a direct. It was like I thought that's the stupidest thing, and that's when the label really started to fall down because this guy didn't know anything. When you say and, New Age label, what does that entail? <laughs> Vapid music, okay. You know, music. Yeah. You know, very not not no passion. You know, mm-hmm. it might mm-hmm. have been world music, but it was not passionate. It was yeah. this guy was just he was a writer. Mm-hmm. He'd write in some somehow or other because you know through some connection, there he was. He'd mm-hmm. been in Canada. He could speak English. Okay, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And class was and it was cheap. And he was going to work with class in Hong Kong, so class could keep an eye on him. Right, so yeah. in the name of profit, yes, that you know. some important yeah. things got overlooked. And also, things. don't forget, this was a period when the record business was going through a t- tough time. Mm. Even though Nexus was starting to really go, it was going to take some money. Right. Because you have to, 
to do these things successfully, you've got to have people with expertise. Yeah. You know. So and that's what we had. Briefly. But it was costing them too much money. Oh, man. You know. And so he, do you have some, like, some records that you're really proud that you, you were part of releasing? And, oh, well, I like it. I think, that, look, the thing was, what was happening, what, 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 we, we did, a, I released about 60 records, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, what was happening was, like, Klaus was getting to be a bit unrealistic. He wanted me to kind of do, we had to do two releases a month. Mm-hmm. Now, two releases a month, quality releases, is not that easy to do, and you had yeah. to. You have they have to be there. You have to do, you know. Every, it's like but quantity has a quality all of its own, don't you know? Well, I'm you joking. Know, yeah, I've never heard that. That's a good line. It's but not true. I, I know. It's not, I got inundated with people from the states. I was getting cardboard boxes full of CDs from people wanting to be on a label, and I finally ended up. Uh-huh. I didn't even listen to them all because there was just too many. Right. Everyone's saying, I'm the greatest, I'm the, listen to this. And there, there was some, some of it was pretty good, but you're starting to get burnout. Mm-hmm. And so by the time Klaus pulled the plug, mm-hmm. I was actually, I was a little bit drunk when he called me. And he, and he was really upset that, that he was having to do it. And I said, Klaus, it's fine, man, don't worry about it, it's fine. Because I was really, it was too stressful. It was getting to be stressful. Mm-hmm. What it started off is I was able to kind of di- make the directions. And I was trying to do it from an artistic perspective. Yeah. Because I really feel that, and this is what a big disappointment to me, I really felt that if you, if you do the quality thing, there's going to be, it'll work. But mm-hmm. I didn't know the business. Yeah. You know, the business is a whole different thing. It's a whole different, like in America yes. is one of the worst places. Because yep. if they don't know who you are in America... They don't want to know about it. It's we, a, yeah, it's a it's a beast that most artistic, creative types don't actually learn to reckon with, and maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> it's a bitch. Yeah. yeah, and we had some success, but I mean, you know, like, but not the success he needed. Mm, you know, it's such a shame. You know, and the thing is, because as I said, I didn't have the support that I really needed, and even so, I might not have been able to do it. But mm. it was it was kind of, mm. it, it was too many things fighting against each other and all the rest of it. And so I, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a shame because I, it could have been, it could, I mean, but that had finished before when he got the Chinese guy and it's not about Ch- anti-Chinese, it's just a guy who was a young, hip Chinaman who didn't know much about jazz yeah. or anything else and had his, and had, and Klaus had given him his own label in direct competition. So you had a little golden period by the sound of things? And yeah. Then, oh, but yeah. it was short. Yeah, oh. yeah. Okay. Well, well, so we, we did about 60 CDs. That's still really good. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, okay, I'm going to roll my last two questions into one. Because <laughs> they're sort of related. Okay. So the first one is, how do you decide who you want to make music with? And, and what is it that you look for when you're assembling an ensemble for like your next record or, or something like that? And then I also want to know if you could make a public service announcement <laughs> to like... This, the newest generation of young people that are calling themselves jazz musicians or improvising musicians or whatever it may be, uh, what would you say to them? Well, first off, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll answer that question first mm. off. The first thing to me is please realize making music is a people business. Mm. It's about your relationships with people and relating to people. So being, it's a people business. Mm-hmm. I don't care how good you are mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, making music is about relating to people Mm -hmm. 
It really is, and that's that's my public service announcement for me. I mean, to me, I think that's that's a hugely important thing. And I like, many many people like this. I like this. I know, you know, yeah. you know. But but still, I, I I can't reinforce that strongly enough. It's about you know you because I've seen so many talented young people who think that they forget all this shit. Mm. And you know, there's a lot of the, a lot of the greats have been arrogant. They've had their arrogance, and maybe they even become arrogant again when they get their success. Maybe, mm-hmm. but. Most most of us, most of us humans, us mere mortals, mm-hmm. we've got to really be aware. And most of the great players are very much like this too. Mm-hmm. It's a people business, mm-hmm. you know. And it's maybe the exception that pr- proves the rule. I'm thinking of Keith Jarrett. But Keith, when I knew Keith, I used to know Keith pretty well. He was always a nice cat to me. Uh-huh. I've heard all these stories. Sounds like you got lucky. <laughs> well, maybe. You know. No, maybe, yeah. maybe it's He was at Berkeley with me. Really? But here practicing in the next room. Uh-huh. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, you can still be a people person without being nice to everyone. <laughs> well, he, but you can, he, he's kind of in a certain thing, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, and l- l- this, this, just the pressures that, that he's put under doing yes. what he does mm-hmm. are quite extreme. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, you know, like, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a one off thing. Yes. All, all, all the people that, Sonny Rollins was always a great guy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot. All my idols, Miles, I didn't really know. I met him, but you know, but I've heard stories that he was he did some wonderful things to people. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't his image at all. No, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, again, it's like you know. So work on your relationships and don't always make it about well, try, yourself. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. don't always make it about yourself. Mm-hmm. That's it. You you summed it up. Mm-hmm. I'll think about that for now. That's a good one. That's a really good one. That's well, what you said. Yeah, right. That's a really good one. All and right. the other one about getting musicians, to me it's about, um, well, it's similar. You know, you want musicians that, of course, you, you want, you know, musicians that can play and, and, and it can play really good and that's always exciting to have someone that's a really a good technician and all the rest of it. Mm. But I've never, like for instance with drummers, I've never really known what, what constitutes technique in drums mm-hmm. and I've played with some of the best drummers in the world mm-hmm. but I never knew what they even sounded good and felt good to me that's all I knew yeah you know yeah. and it's the same thing with anything I mean you know if, if they make it sound good mm-hmm. they make something sound good. and so there's a, a, a kind of a, an honesty mm-hmm. about their music and their playing mm-hmm. I mean so, so it's those kind of qualities and also a willingness to kind of um, Lack of ego. Mm-hmm. Of course, we, it's it's kind of a paradox because you need ego to play, but you need to be able to kind of let your ego go and you know to, to be able to ride it. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense? Mm-hmm. You know, peel the layers of the onion away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, of course, you know, ego is what you know. That's what. But you've got to kind of also be able to sublimate your ego. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in all aspects. And that is a lifelong challenge. It is. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Mike Nock, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Oh, well, thank you. Well, thank you for asking me. It's (laughs) It's my pleasure. You ask the greatest questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Until next time, this is Stuff You Can't Say with Jazz Piano. Mike Nock, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Emma.
Thank you for listening to Stuff You Can't Say with Jazz Piano. If you'd like to donate, you can go to patreon.com slash emmagracestevenson. After covering my basic administration costs, I will donate any profits in excess of that to the top recommended charities listed at givewell.org. Right now you're listening to an excerpt from the title track of Mike's 2012 album, Here and Know, which was also featured at the beginning of this episode. 